One of the key steps forward in the recent explosion in clinical research in renal cell cancer has been the evolution of the use of the so-called mTOR inhibitors. The first major trial evaluated Tempsirolinus and was published in May 2007 in the New England Journal of Medicine. I met with Dr. Gary Hudes, the first author of this historic publication, and he began by commenting on an oral ASCO presentation this year evaluating another mTOR inhibitor, RAD001. We've had a number of new drug approvals in kidney cancer. There are a lot of options for first-line treatment of kidney cancer. One important advance at this year's ASCO was a trial that was done specifically for the patient who has had disease progression on serafinib or sunitinib, the two approved VEGF tyrosine kinase inhibitors. This has been a conundrum in terms of what to do second line. So absent any clinical trial to answer the question, comparing anything to anything, what we've been doing is, since we have three approved drugs, we've been going from one to the next to the next, but really not having really conclusive data about what we're accomplishing with that. But it's, I think, in medicine, we sometimes operate without data because we have to do the best we can for the patient, obviously. Pretty often. <laughs> Pretty often. <laughs> so it was refreshing at this year's ASCO to see a trial that compared a drug to see what it would do second line. And that drug was RAD001, also called Everolimus. And those results were reported this year by Dr. Bob Mozer. The patient population were people who had had sunitinib or serafinib or both and possibly some other treatment as well. So they had already received one of the approved first-line therapies for kidney cancer, but the disease progressed. Now, what do we know about RAD as opposed to TEM? Right. So RAD is also, like Temsorolimus, a inhibitor of mTOR, a mammalian target of rapamycin, mTOR for short. This is an interesting target in kidney cancer. It does seem to control cell proliferation and angiogenesis, and there are now actually three mTOR inhibitors, really four if you count the oldest one of all, the parent drug rapamycin or rapamune, which is only used right now for allograft prophylaxis of renal allograft rejection because of its immunosuppressive properties. But rapamycin is really the parent drug. Temsorolimus is and everolimus, or RAD001, and another drug, deferolimus, are all what we call rapologs, or analogs, of serolimus or rapamycin. Two of these have been tried in renal cancer. First was temsorolimus. That was the global ARC study that was presented at ASCO a few years ago is approved for kidney cancer, showed its best results. In fact, the trial was designed for patients with multiple adverse risk factors for short survival and showed a survival advantage. RAD001 came along a little later, and the trial looked at a different population, patients who have already received sunitinib or serafinib. And the trial was set up so that patients were randomized to receive RAD001, again, also known as everolimus, or best supportive care, placebo, and best supportive care. The study did allow a crossover if patients on placebo had progressed. They were unblinded if they had been receiving placebo. They were allowed to eventually receive everolimus. Best supportive care is second line. I wonder how that sort of sat with patients and docs. I think that kind of design is a tough design 
unless there's a immediate crossover on progression and unless there's something else to do. This study was started before Temsorolimus was approved. It was started probably about the time that serafinib was approved, but it allowed prior serafinib or sunitinib. So actually, the population that could have gone on this could have had both of the then-approved therapies for kidney cancer. So even though some patients went on after only one of the TKIs, it did allow you to get both of the tyrosine kinase inhibitors, the approved ones at that time, serafinib and sunitinib. And in fact, about 25% of the patients on this trial received both sunitinib and serafinib before they actually enrolled. So in that sense, it was a reasonable design. And I think the crossover also made it very palatable for patients and physicians. Good point. So what do they see? So they saw a striking benefit from RAD001 compared to placebo. The median progression-free survival was four months for RAD001, Everolimus, and for placebo, it was 1.9 months, median progression-free survival. I think the benefit here, the activity of Everolimus is not surprising. I think the fact that placebo patients progressed in only 1.9 months on one hand is maybe a little faster than we thought, but on the other hand, we had data from an older study of serafinib, a randomized discontinuation study that showed that patients actually did progress rather quickly in about two months when they stopped serafinib. So maybe these findings really aren't so surprising after all. What about response rates? Well, that's interesting because the response rate was very low. It was about 1% for Everolimus and about the same for placebo. So it's basically the benefit here is really in stabilization of disease. And when you look at the data, do you really believe that there's something there for sure? I mean, two months doesn't sound like very much. Yeah, this is not a major lengthening of disease control, but it does establish efficacy in terms of the median effect. But there are some patients on that survival curve who do considerably better with disease control. So I think, as in a lot of therapies, what we accomplish is, in fact, incremental. Yeah, and many different tumors nowadays. What about the differences in terms of sort of the clinical research database that we have right now with TEM versus EVER? The mTOR inhibitors are really more similar than they are different. I mean, the mechanism of action is so specific for these drugs, for the mTOR protein kinase, that there are some differences in formulation. TEM is only an IV formulation now. Everolimus is only an oral formulation. But in terms of the actual activity, it would be very difficult to really prove that one is better than the other, knowing the mechanism of action with the different formulations, the different schedules. How about side effects and toxicity? Very similar. Which are? Chiefly, stomatitis is probably the most common, some fatigue, anemia, rash, diarrhea. These are the most common toxicities. And then rarely, but a problem can be pulmonary toxicity, which in a few percent of patients, I think it was about 8% in the Everolimus study, can require a dose modification or a temporary halting of treatment. What's the specific pulmonary syndrome? It can be anything from ground glass infiltrates in an asymptomatic patient, which is actually maybe the most common, to actually symptomatic dyspnea, bilateral infiltrates that really requires halting the treatment and even treating with steroids. It's almost all the time reversible. So it's an interstitial pneumonitis? It is. 
Any projections about if and when ever will become available in the United States? There is a likelihood that there will be an access program developed by the sponsor to make this drug available as they file for approval with the regulatory agencies. I mean, what would be a situation where you might want to use that as opposed to temps or malignments? I mean, I guess somebody who can't get an IV? Yeah, I think this brings up a good point, which is that you have another mTOR inhibitor that's already approved. It is very likely that this drug has similar activity. So a practitioner could actually use the everolimus data as further evidence to bolster the use of temsorolimus, which has a general approval in renal cell carcinoma. And I think, to me, this is more a study that validates the use of mTOR inhibition in the second line as a very viable approach. This is a drug that has a different mechanism of action, and I think practitioners look across the studies, which have basically all used interferon as the comparator arm, so we really have no head-to-head comparisons with any of the approved drugs. But clearly sunitinib has a very high objective response rate, the longest progression-free survival of any of the drugs, and in the first-line setting, the pattern is clear that sunitinib currently in the U.S. is the favored first-line therapy for the good and intermediate prognosis patient. And it's even being used, I think, in patients with poor prognostic renal cell carcinoma. Temsorolimus... I guess that was the niche that temsorolimus was supposed to fit into. That's right. That's right. The data seem to indicate that use is increasing for poor prognosis patients in the first-line setting. And it's also increasing in the second-line setting as well. So if you look at usage patterns for the drugs, clearly way ahead of the pack in terms of market share is sunitinib, and then serafinib is next, and temsorolimus is just slightly a few percent behind. And any specific pattern in terms of how it's being used first, second, and third line, and how do you generally approach the decision first and second, third line? Yeah. For the poor prognosis patient, I use temsorolimus first line. And I also consider it as second-line therapy as well for patients who have progressed on Sutent. But there are some patients where oral therapy is still preferable, and for some of those patients, I use serafinib as a second-line therapy. I think we have to, though, mention that there are so many new agents being tested now in kidney cancer that a practicing oncologist probably doesn't have to look too far for a second-line or even a second- or third-line trial of a new tyrosine kinase inhibitor. There are several others that are of interest or a new novel therapy. So clinical trial should be also considered in addition. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these agents are exciting. They're not necessarily that toxic. I wonder about maybe, you know, the idea of bringing phase two work earlier on in the algorithm. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, another drug that we haven't discussed is bevacizumab and what the role of this agent will be. The phase three study that really brought attention to this drug presented at ASCO last year by Dr. Escudier. That phase three study clearly showed the addition of bevacizumab to interferon was better than interferon. That was the so-called Avorin trial? The Avorin trial. That was updated at ASCO, right? It was. And what it showed was the data presented was predominantly an analysis of what the effect of reducing the dose of interferon would be. This is of I think, high relevance to practicing, all of us, practicing and academic oncologists, because clearly interferon adds toxicity and convenience, and the bevacizumab, I think many of us feel, is doing the lion's share of the work in that combination. A minor share in terms of toxicity, probably. Yeah. 
those Very side well, effects. I think we all hypothesize that that's exactly the case. So the question is, if you need to lower the interferon dose to make this more tolerable, does it adversely affect the activity of the combination? Dr. Escudier's data suggest not that, in fact, the combination is just as active if you lower the dose of interferon from 9 million to 6 million or even 3 million. So the logical question is, which really begs to be tested, do you need the interferon alone? Right. Assuming you get it paid for, or I don't know, do you use Ovacizumab outside a protocol setting, and do you, how do you deal with the issue of interferon? I think this is a regional issue because the reimbursement pattern in my location is very difficult. So I don't use Bevacizumab often in renal cell carcinoma. It's a fight to really get this approved. But in other regions, it may be easier. Can you talk a little bit about the available clinical research data, not just of ORM, but other data that's available on bevacizumab, and sort of theoretically where you think it should fit in the algorithm right now, where you think it's heading? Yeah, there are now two trials of the bevacizumab-interferon combination. The Avorin trial, which was presented at last ASCO, and then this year, Dr. Rini presented the CALGB study comparing a similar doublet interferon, 9 million units, sub-Q three times a week, plus bevacizumab, 10 milligrams per kilogram every two weeks IV. The trials were slightly different because the CALGB study had as its primary endpoint overall survival. The Avorin study began that way, but then amended the study for progression-free survival as the primary endpoint. Dr. Rini presented the CALGB results this year, and they are similar to the results of Avorin benefit for the addition of bevacizumab, median progression-free survival about eight and a half months compared to just over five months for interferon. The difference not as striking in progression-free survival, but the confidence limits overlap sufficiently enough, and clearly the addition of bevacizumab was beneficial to patients. about response rates? And response survival? rate was also about 25% in the CALGB study similar to what it was in the Avorin study. The endpoint of overall survival has objective response rate for bevacizumab plus interferon. Compared to? Compared to somewhere in the range of 10% for interferon as a single agent. And that kind of differential was very similar to what was seen in Avorin. The overall survival is still not mature in the CALGB study. Dr. Escudier presented a early look at that data last year, and it had not met the endpoint for showing any difference. Now, given the caveats of indirect comparison, how do you compare those kinds of data to what's seen with, say, sunitinib first line? Well, I think there are a couple of considerations. One would be activity. The activity seems similar, but of course, we don't have head-to-head comparison. And sunitinib, with an 11-month median progression-free survival, you know, again, that may be real. It may be compared to compared to 10 months or so for. If you look at the two bevacizumab interferon arms from the two trials, you're talking eight and a half months in one, 10.4 months in the other. Those kinds of things are difficult to, again, outside of a head-to-head comparison, make conclusions about. But I would think more about the differential between that and the control arm. Yeah. What was it? So, again, it was about... With sunitinib? Sunitinib, it was five months for the interferon. So the control arms in all of these studies performed about the same. What is different, though, is the toxicity spectrum. And the bevacizumab-interferon combination does carry with it much more fatigue 
than does the sunitinib trial. And in fact, a majority of patients who start with interferon at 9 million units in this combination have to have a dose reduction. If you could get it paid for, would you just go ahead and use bevacizumab without the interferon? (laughs) That would be very tempting in some patients. You know, if there were some data, a trial, to support it, that would be very intriguing. Aren't there some phase two data, the single agent Bev? Yes, and in fact, the median progression-free survival in that trial was about eight and a half months. So it is intriguing. If and you they look, saw responses too, right? Uh, the response rate there was about 12%. But I mean, in most solid tumors, we don't see monotherapy responses to Bev. Right. In fact, in renal cell, you probably see more than you do in yeah. other solid no, I mean, tumors. 10% which makes is sense. pretty high, yeah. Right. It makes sense. You're right. It would be tempting to use single-agent bevacizumab without the interferon. I think the question is, is interferon with bevacizumab synergistic? Is that high response rate, 25% response rate, a consequence of that synergy? And does it make a difference overall in terms of disease control and overall survival? Or are you just as well off using only the bevacizumab alone? That's a key question. And that trial should probably be done in some setting. What do you think it would show? My own personal belief is that it would show a minor contribution of the interferon and more toxicity. You know, related to Temsorolinus, I know you're part of a presentation here at ASCO looking at kind of an interesting thing, hyperglycemia, hypercholesteremia, and hyperlipidemia. Can you talk about that paper? Sure. Those metabolic abnormalities, hyperglycemia, hypercholesterolemia, hyperlipidemia, these were among the most common toxicities seen with Temsorolimus and also with Everolimus as well. This is a class effect, and mTOR is involved in insulin signaling. Hmm. It lies in that PI3 kinase that the insulin receptor, insulin growth factor receptors actually signal through. So it's a direct effect on the pancreas? It's a direct effect on the ability of insulin to actually signal when it hits the cell receptor. Hmm. To send oh, that. I see. Yeah. So it's not on the pancreas. It's on the... So it probably affects glucose transport into cells. One possible hmm. mechanism is regulation of a protein called GLUT1, which controls glucose entry. So uh, these are in all cells then? Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's right. So you do get hyperglycemia. There may be other mechanisms as well, that because the regulation of lipid and glucose metabolism may involve multiple proteins that mTOR regulates. So we don't understand, the bottom line is the details of the mechanism, but the metabolic syndrome that results is a class effect, and it's a direct consequence of inhibiting mTOR. And what fraction of patients experience this? Well, you'll find about a quarter of patients will have some degree of hyperglycemia, What is not clear, and this is not a fault of the study designs, but is how many people have some baseline glucose intolerance. And as we put them on study, we find out about this. But in our trial, about 10% of patients had sufficient hyperglycemia that it required treatment, either with an oral agent or with insulin. And when you stop the drug, it goes away? It goes away. What about patients who are already diabetic? It can aggravate the diabetes, so some of those patients may need some adjustment in their oral agent or their insulin dose. It's actually less of a problem for those patients because most of these patients are already monitoring their glucose. So you do need to make patients aware that they may have to start with AccuChecks and you know, glucose monitoring. And what's the time sequence of when it develops? 
Well, it can develop in patients who are not diabetic. It takes a little bit longer to develop, but in the time frame of about a month. And what's recommended in terms of surveillance? Well, most of these patients are going to have weekly blood counts, so we monitor their glucose weekly as well. Now, the other thing you reported on was cholesterol and lipids. Mm-hmm. What did you see there? So, again, patients will develop hypercholesterolemia. Some of these may require treatment with a statin. And, again, what do you think the mechanism is? Same mechanism, direct inhibition of mTOR, control of lipid metabolism. Hmm. In terms of these lipid effects, again, what would you suggest in terms of surveillance and you know, clinically what to do about it? We always get in patients the baseline glucose, cholesterol, and triglyceride levels, fasting levels for all of those three parameters, and we monitor them at least once a month for the cholesterol and triglycerides. If they rise out of the normal range, we recommend beginning treatment with a statin to begin with. Do they respond? They respond very nicely, and this is usually not a deal breaker for treatment. You can usually control these readily with currently available therapy. Where do you see things moving forward in renal cell? And a lot of tumors, obviously, biologic therapy is being looked at right now. And you hear a lot about combinations, you know, vertical and horizontal, which I'm not even sure exactly what they are, downstream, upstream. I know you're part of a paper here at ASCO looking at sunitinib and tempsorolinus. Is that something, it looks to me like there's a lot of interest in that concept. Yeah, there's a lot of interest because I think in oncology, we're always taught that if you have active agents, especially with different mechanisms of action, that you might get better anti-cancer effects with combination therapy. And so that research direction is being pursued with many combinations. And this is very relevant to the practicing physician. But there's really a big word of caution here because these drugs, they are different compounds, different structures. They don't work completely alike, but they do have the commonality the common uh, activity of inhibiting angiogenesis. And we Including think of tem? Even temsorolimus. Hmm. Now, with temsorolimus. Seems like everything inhibits angiogenesis. <laughs> if you give it the right way, everything does. That's Taxanes, right. I mean, you yeah. know. Yeah, cytoxan. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, but the key point is, is that to jump into combinations without the safety data can be perilous right. for the patients. I think illustrative of this problem is the combination of sunitinib and temsorolimus. That may be the shortest phase one study I've ever participated in, and it lasted all of three patients. And that was with scaling back the dose of temsorolimus to just 10 milligrams and sunitinib to 25 milligrams. And clearly that combination on the usual schedules for both of those drugs was not tolerable for the patients. All of them had grade three or four toxicity within a few weeks of starting the treatment. Of what type? This was thrombocytopenia in one case. It was very bad hand-foot syndrome and skin rash to the point of requiring hospitalization in another patient and profound fatigue in a third patient. So I think the lesson is that you may have agents that work individually, but putting them together ad hoc without actual safety data can be perilous. What do you think the potential is in terms of anti-tumor efficacy? I think that's something that really needs to be looked at carefully. And there is a study that's looking at this, and this is what I would recommend when you're thinking about combinations. There's a study sponsored by the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group. It's now an intergroup study, so it's available through the Clinical Trial Support Unit through NCI. It compares single-agent bevacizumab to three combinations, temsorolimus and bevacizumab, serafinib and bevacizumab, 
and temsorolimus and serafinib. So it's taking basically three drugs, temsorolimus, serafinib, and bevacizumab, and looking at the combinations of the possible doublets. Now, you might say, what happened to sunitinib? And, you know, that would be a reasonable question. At the time that this study was designed, the sunitinib combination data was just totally non-existent. And really, there is very little data for those combinations that allow you to go forward. So there is no sunitinib-temsorolimus combination or sunitinib-bevacizumab combination. I would like to point out, though, that ADASCO is a study of sunitinib and bevacizumab presented by the group at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And apropos to the point of safety before proceeding, that study showed that with long-term therapy, there was an unacceptable rate of microangiopathic thrombocytopenia and hemolytic syndrome. So it was not anticipated toxicity. But interestingly, in light of recent reports, one in the New England Journal of Medicine recently, of a microangiopathic syndrome that results with bevacizumab treatment. Not a common syndrome, but it is seen occasionally with single-agent bevacizumab. So what would the mechanism be? Immunologic? Direct damage to the endothelial cell and uh, apparently affecting the kidney as one explanation for occasional decline in renal function. Hmm. Did they have enough to look at efficacy in the sunitinib-bev trial? They did, and it wasn't immediately clear that the response rate or duration of response was better than you would expect with sunitinib single agent. So I think this BEST study that puts together those three combinations versus bevacizumab is a very important trial in terms of showing that combinations are feasible and the endpoint of that study is going to be progression-free survival. So the question is, where do you set the bar for a combination to justify the anticipated extra toxicity of two drugs versus one drug? So if you consider the other, the alternative way of using multiple agents sequence, maybe that should be explored as well. Hmm. So does this trial, first of all, have you put patients on the trial yourself? We have the trial just opened at our center. Just opened, right. So does the trial specify what the next therapy would be or a crossover or anything like that? does not remove any of the options. Now, there is another trial that was comparing first-line bevacizumab, temsorolimus, and sunitinib, and the design of the study had a crossover to one of the two agents the patient hadn't received already. Hmm. A very neat design with a very interesting statistical approach that would actually pick a winner in terms of overall disease control. Hmm. Unfortunately, industry uh, apparently has not decided to support that trial. I think we've got to go to the National Cancer Institute and really ask them to help out here and broker this so that it can happen. Because that's the alternate strategy, really. Combinations is great. Hopefully, they would be a real home run, if not a double or triple, and you know move the bar forward. But it's possible it's just going to be a toxicity issue and that you'll do just as well with sequence. That's my personal belief, by the way. It's interesting, too, that in this ECOG study, they're using BEV but no interferon. That's right. They just sort of made the leap. That's right. Hmm. Anything else presented here at ASCO in a renal cell that you think is important for docs in practice to know about? One interesting paper was presented by Robert Figlin, and this was an update on the sunitinib data, the sunitinib versus interferon study. And this now reported on survival. 
So they had enough events to really do the statistical analysis. And the difference in survival done by the conventional statistical analysis really approached significance. The p-value was 0.051. And keeping in mind that this study allowed a crossover late in its design, so the crossover wasn't built in until sunitinib gained approval. What was interesting was that the median survival for patients who received sunitinib was 26 months. And the median survival for patients who were randomized to interferon was 20 months. What's striking about this is that 20 months, 26 months, this is definitely different from what we expect in metastatic renal cell carcinoma right. in the cytokine era, where we expect 14 months median survival. So I think this is our first indication that targeted therapy improves survival of patients with renal cancer. Is this something that's just sort of encouragement for the future that we're moving in the right direction? Absolutely. Or, or well, of course, I mean, it is that, but... I mean, really clinically meaningful. Yeah. I mean, do you see the difference in your patients? Do you think you look at it and, you know, kind of get this overall feel? You're seeing a lot more people with renal cell than people in practice. Do you think you can see the difference? You can see the difference because you're seeing the patients longer. The Hmm. clinics are busier. Hmm. These patients, they come back, and some of them come back for years and years. And this is something that in the past was the exception rather than the rule. Now it's more the rule. What about adjuvant therapy? You know, about a third of patients with localized disease are going to be destined to develop metastases. And most of those patients will eventually die of renal cancer. So if you could prevent relapse of a third, that 30 to 35% of patients with local But I mean, how many people present with metastatic disease? How many? What fraction? It's about a quarter... 30% of patients will present with metastases, and then of those who present with localized disease, about 30% of those will recur. So it does sound like a substantial part of the overall mortality is coming out of recurrence. Yes. Maybe not as much as breast cancer, but probably more than, say, lung cancer. Yeah. Can you talk about the one major adjuvant trial? Yeah. The ASSURE trial began two years ago and is a randomization of patients who have high-risk tumors, and that can be a high-grade T2 tumor, a T3 tumor, or T4 tumor, or any T tumor with lymph nodes positive. And those patients are randomly assigned double-blind to either placebo, serafinib, or sunitinib for a year. And the doses of the active agents are the conventional doses used for metastatic disease. That study is well on its way on target to complete accrual, it's asking a very important question. And, you know, we anxiously await. It's going to take probably a while for those results to finish accrual, probably another year, and then to see the results may take a few years. But we really need an answer to this question. What is the role of these new agents in preventing relapse? You're putting patients on the study? Absolutely. Can you tell which ones are getting treatment as opposed to placebo? (laughs) You frequently can. What do you see? You can see hand-foot syndrome. You see the blood pressures go up sometimes, you know, some fatigue. We can make a pretty good guess. Can you (laughs) guess which of the TKIs it is? Well, that's a little tougher, but sometimes we can. (laughs) You know, what's your experience with those two agents in terms of what you actually see clinically in terms of side effects and toxicity, and how do you deal with it? 
how do you manage the side effects of the tyrosine kinase? What are they and how do you manage them? Well, with sunitinib, the most common effects are fatigue, some mouth sensitivity, stomatitis that really is more of a sensitivity to acidic substances, sometimes some hand-foot syndrome, and diarrhea. Diarrhea is very straightforward. It's the usual, you know, Imodium usually works very well. Sometimes there'll be some hypertension that requires adjustment of medications. Usually fairly straightforward to do. The mouth sensitivity, usually not a deal breaker, but some patients will sometimes need to use some mouthwash, anesthetic mouthwash that'll help them. But usually not a deal breaker, really. More of an annoyance. And the fatigue, there we basically rule out the occasional patient who will develop hypothyroidism as a consequence of sunitinib. Do you actually screen and do thyroid function tests? We do, but we do not recommend acting on an asymptomatic elevation of TSH in a patient who's feeling well and has no symptoms. So we don't offer thyroid replacement therapy. We do, however, do that for a patient who develops severe fatigue and is showing us an elevation of TSH because sometimes this really can ameliorate the toxicity. And now has the thyroid syndrome been seen with serafinib? No. Hmm. So what's the typical syndrome you see there with serafinib? There it's more hypertension, hand-foot syndrome, occasionally other skin rash. There may be some diarrhea, occasionally some nausea. These are the most common toxicities with serafinib. So your ballpark clinical impression in terms of the fraction of patients who get either one of those agents where you know it really gets to be a problem? I would say it's probably, in my experience, about 10% of patients on sunitinib early on will need a dose reduction. With serafinib, probably same thing, but with serafinib, it's more for hand-foot syndrome and blood pressure. With sunitinib, it's more because of fatigue. Do you think that's because of the schedule or the inherent differences in the drug? I think there are inherent differences in terms of the vulnerable tissues. But, you know, it's interesting because there was a study, uh, update on the expanded access program for the sunitinib study, and it did show that over time, a good proportion of patients end up with a dose reduction, about a third down to 37.5 milligrams and a smaller fraction down to 25 milligrams. So it does seem that the longer you stay on this drug, the greater the risk that you will develop a toxicity. There is a large study that's based in Europe that will compare serafinib for one year with serafinib for three years with placebo. So that's another large randomized study. The question there is a little bit different. It's duration as well as a treatment with the anti-angiogenic drug But it's not just treatment. It's really, do you need to continue this long-term? And there, I think the big issue will be safety, tolerability, and not just whether the drug prevents relapse, but what the optimal duration is. You know, I guess the biologic therapy where I've seen the most research on that, I guess, would be hormone therapy in breast cancers, particularly with tamoxifen. They look at all the different durations and the controversies, et cetera. But one thing I've been hearing about with biologic therapy and particularly anti-VEGF therapy, is the question of rebound. And can you talk about that concept and, you know, any speculations about how long you have to be on these agents? I mean, we did a program when just recently talking about taking imatinib indefinitely. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, they're all different models and stuff, but in renal cell, how do you think it plays out? Yeah. Well, the current model now is really indefinite therapy. No one has done any of the studies with, you know, six months and stop or 
longer duration and stop. So there, that's in the metastatic setting. In the metastatic setting, right. So the adjuvant setting is going to, in a sense, you know, with a one-year limitation on the Assure study and the one- and three-year limitations on the European study, test a finite duration of treatment. But I think even in the metastatic setting, there are patients who are on sunitinib or serafinib for years. And clearly these patients, most of them have some side effects. The question would be, what if you get a stabilization of disease, a plateau in response? Why not stop the drug? Anecdotally, many clinicians have reported a rebound effect where the disease rapidly progresses. In my experience, that's more the exception than the rule. We see more commonly stabilization for a period and then slow progression of the disease that warrants restarting the treatment. Why did these patients stop? Well, maybe they needed a surgical procedure of some type. Maybe they had a toxicity and they needed a treatment break. But I think it's a reasonable question to ask, do you need to stay on these drugs indefinitely or can you take a break and then retreat when the disease progresses? What about the issue of surgery and these agents? That's an interesting question. And, you know, when you're taking a drug for what could be years, many of us are going to need something done, some dental work, anything to coronary catheterization or major surgery. The general guideline has been to stop the agent, at least in the case of the tyrosine kinase inhibitors, for several weeks, and to also delay restarting the agent for several weeks after the procedure before restarting the agent. Now, with bevacizumab, it's a different issue because the drug is an antibody It has a half-life of about three weeks. So it's there. Most surgeons will not do major surgery without at least six weeks or eight weeks off of the antibody. Now, what do we actually know about wound healing, both with BEV as well as the TKIs? Yeah, there is some concern that these agents will impair wound healing. I mean, is that the primary issue in terms of surgical timing? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there are these data with more so with bevacizumab, But with viscous perforations, mostly in patients with abdominal disease, tumor, one of the ovarian trials brought this to light. On the other hand, some of the other ovarian trials where the patients had less advanced disease, this was not an issue. But if you look at all the bevacizumab safety data in almost every disease site, there is a patient on study who has had a perforation. It's not just ovarian cancer. It's a low incidence, but it is something that needs to be kept in mind, the patient who presents with abdominal pain, who's taken bevacizumab, to keep this in mind. And, you know, people have diverticulitis. These agents may affect that as well, or diverticulosis. Although I guess it also depends on, you know, what's going on in the belly, sort of in terms of tumor, et cetera. The NSAVP reported at this ASCO meeting their safety data with the adjuvant colon study, where obviously you don't have intra-abdominal known disease. And They really didn't see perforation. When you talk about poor prognosis and really changing what your first-line therapy is, what are the key factors that you're looking at? For defining poor prognosis. Right. Yeah, these are really the factors that were used in the trial, and they were time from original diagnosis of renal cell cancer to development of metastatic disease, and there the cut point is within a year. That's the adverse prognostic factor. High calcium, high LDH, low hemoglobin, and low performance status. Now, the study that was done with Tempsirolimus added a sixth factor, multiple sites of disease. So if you have cancer in lung and lymph nodes, that's multiple sites of disease. These are basically the five criteria that were developed at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. 
the prognostic factor model from Memorial with the addition of multiple sites of disease for the sixth factor. So to define poor prognosis, we require three of those six factors. Roughly what fraction of patients are presenting that way? You know, I think it's a distinct minority, and some of us have the impression that the pool of these poor-risk patients seems to be smaller. Whether this reflects more awareness that this is a treatable disease and patients get treatment quicker, you know, that may be one possible reason. But remember that poor prognosis study required a global effort with about 200 sites to enroll this poor prognosis subgroup. So I think fortunately this is a minority. It's probably 15%, no more than 20% of patients with poor prognosis renal cancer. How often do you see patients, I'm sure it's not very common, that you must see patients presenting with metastatic disease or very symptomatic. I mean, you mentioned hypercalcemia, you know, bone pain, et cetera. Any sort of global thought or experience in terms of how often you're able to put the patient, you know, has significantly improved the patient's symptomatology? Yeah, I think this kind of biology, patients do seem to present differently. And I think if you look across the studies, that symptomatic patient with rapid growth of their cancer does not fare as well with Sutent, with Serafinib, with Temsirolimus. This really is an area, a subgroup of patients, really largely the poor prognosis population. And one could envision that maybe doublets might be better for these patients if you could demonstrate that they had more activity. But this is a group that we really need to have better treatment for. So you don't often have the experience of being able to treat the patient, how the patient's symptoms dramatically improve and stay improved for a while? It can happen. But they, not can, that they can respond. They can respond. But I think if you look at just the overall survival in this group, it's less than a year. So with an annual instance in the range of 50,000 cases of renal cell, you know, if you sort of think about, we think there's six or 7,000 oncologists in the United States who see maybe 90% of the patients. I mean, that's just sort of our ballpark guess. So you'd expect they'd have a handful of new patients a year, and I'm not really sure where these people are getting treated. Do you think they are getting treated in the community, you know, from diagnosis to death without ever seeing a tertiary center, or do you think a higher fraction are coming to tertiary centers? I think awareness of these new agents is pretty widespread now. I think the bulk of these patients are being treated in the community setting now. I just wonder the pragmatics of getting clinical research done in the tumors that are less common in the community. You know, it's all well and good. You know, some of these breast cancer trials that these patients every week coming in are eligible for, but sort of setting up the infrastructure to do clinical research, I just kind of wonder how it's going to get done or if it's going to get done Mm -hmm. in a tumor like renal cell and even more so with less common tumors. Yeah. I think our success in some ways does lower the pool of potential clinical trial patients. On the other hand, I think there is a group of both the academic centers and some practices where the clinical trials are done so that I think what's different now than perhaps 15 years ago is that the partnership between industry extends beyond the academic centers and actually does go to some of the bigger practices, and they help out and contribute a lot. Yeah, it's interesting. Actually, in our patterns of care studies, we consistently see that in the range of two-thirds of oncologists are putting patients on some kind of study, and a lot of them are industry studies. Yeah. So it's really part of oncology practice. But again, I just kind of wonder how much of that's the more common tumors as opposed to the less common. Anything 
else you want to add to what we've talked about today? We're just about over, but any issue that we haven't talked about that you think we might want to talk about? Any question that you get from docs in practice that we haven't discussed? Yeah, one question that comes up, and this is you know an area that hasn't had too many studies, is the patients that have the non-clear cell histology. So right. renal cell, I mean, most of the patients, at least 75% of them have clear cell renal cell carcinoma, but about 20-25% will have one of the so-called non-clear cell histologies, papillary, chromophobe, occasionally collecting duct. And these patients were, by and large, with the exception of the Temsorolimus study, were excluded. They basically were not allowed on study. We do have some experience of sutent serafinib in those patients from the expanded access programs that were done after the studies were completed but before drug approval. They seem to indicate that patients do not respond as frequently or have the disease controlled as often. But there really is no, you know, guideline in terms of what's the optimal therapy. Is it sunitinib? Is it temsorolimus for those patients? Is it bevacizumab and interferon? Now, Dr. Escudier's presentation the other day did look at the non-clear cell patients. Yeah, that was the BEV interferon. Yeah, but it was mostly sarcomatoid histology, which is not really non-clear cell, but it is an unfavorable factor in terms of disease biology, the sarcomatoid differentiation. What do they see there? And they see instead of a 10.4-month median progression-free survival, it's more like a 7.2 months in that subgroup with BEV and interferon. So those patients at least in a subgroup analysis, don't fare as well as patients without, quote, the typical clear cell histology. So the practitioner, you know, may come across one of these patients occasionally. And in this situation, his choices are to use one of the approved drugs. But we need to do some trials with those patients to compare the different treatments and see which is optimal. Is that what you do? I'm talking about off-study. Off-study. Yeah, well, study the data I use is I tend to use Temsorolimus because that's a study that allowed non-clear cell. And the difference, the advantage compared to interferon was the same as it was with clear cell. You know, I can remember a couple of years ago at ASCO here, there's a whole bunch of renal papers presented. And I remember seeing a couple of waterfall plots. That were, that's when I got, <laughs> I actually got really excited about waterfall plots out of renal cell. What do you think is actually going on in patients? And what I saw there was a lot of responses. Is that your take about what's going on with renal cell, that there's maybe a lot of minor responses? Yeah, I think so. I think you're exactly right. I think what's going on is some kind of redefinition. We want to show an effect, but it doesn't make resist criteria. These are really patients who would be considered by resist stable disease. But the investigators, I think we as a group, kind of move the bar sometimes. So personally, I think it's questionable methodologically in terms of what it means for overall survival. Is there a relationship between a waterfall plot that shows 70% of patients with some shrinkage? But when you look at those plots, when you hit the bottom before it starts showing progression, some of these shrinkages are 1%, 2%, 3%. What does that mean for a patient? I don't know. Does it mean anything more than a 15%? You know, I think it's sort of a method of the times to show even the stable disease patients and that they are getting some shrinkage of the tumor. But some journal editors don't look favorably upon that. It doesn't have a statistical validation yet. I can't say I've seen it a whole lot outside of renal. Out of, out of renal, yeah. You guys but are I, more the waterfall people. 
<laughs> but, you know, the same thing is happening with PET imaging in GIST tumors. There you might be on some firmer ground, but what does a PET scan mean when you knock those SUVs down? Does it correlate with ultimate advantage? Does it correlate with disease response? Does it correlate with progression-free survival, overall survival? In GIST, I mean, it seems to be a pretty good early readout of disease control, but in some tumors it may not. I just kind of wonder, you know, in terms of research, focusing on biologic agents, whether the endpoints and the resist criteria, et cetera, are going to work. What do you think? Yeah, I think we've seen evidence now in renal cell cancer that resist by itself would not be a good predictor of a survival benefit in the Temsorolimus study. And I think in this Everolimus study, just presented at this ASCO, the response rate of 1% still was associated with an improvement in progression-free survival compared to placebo. So your point is well taken. Resist by itself does not predict benefit even in terms of progression-free survival or overall survival, lack of response. But I think all of us would agree that when you look at a very highly active drug, you expect to see responses. And I think better drugs will, in general, give you better responses and longer overall survival and progression-free survival compared to drugs that only are static. And I think ultimately on our wish list are drugs that are highly active that will cause disease regressions. But at this point, we can't be so choosy to throw out the ones that stabilize disease, even if it's for you know a limited time.